0: I'm the legendary Burl Bear. I've often been horrified by prosecutorial misconduct. That's when the prosecutors do all sorts of nasty stuff. It is very rare when a prosecutor blows the whistle on prosecutor misconduct, but that's exactly what Michael Griesbach is doing. Michael, pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, Great to be here, Burl. I read your book. Uh, Actually, I plowed through it again last night, and it just pisses me off.
1: Yeah, you know, it pissed me off, and that's why I wrote it to begin with, to tell you the truth. I I saw everything you read, you know, happening uh, while I'm on the job, and that's not what we're supposed to be doing, and that's kind of why I wrote the book.
0: Well, I, you know, I've, I've seen it. Of course, I've never been a prosecutor, never been a defense attorney. I've been falsely accused. I've been writing true crime books for several years, and I've seen some stuff that's absolutely horrifying. Most people, it never crosses their mind. They just assume that... Well, believe it go so far as to say, "Well, the prosecutor wouldn't be prosecuting unless the guy was guilty."
1: Yeah, you know, and uh, I, 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 uh, I think that's true most of the time. But I think when it's not, and it's it's a sizable minority of times when it's not, you know, then it just screws things up completely. And it's scary. Some people, I guess it's like everything. You know, teachers, there's good ones, there's bad ones. There's janitors, there's good ones, there's bad ones. There's disc jockeys, you know. good Oh, and bad. yeah, there's some that
0: can hit the post and some that can't.
1: Yeah, yeah and when there's prosecutors involved or cops. Yeah, you know, they got so much discretion that when they do stuff for for the wrong reasons, they can really mess things up down the road.
0: Well, for the benefit of our listening audience worldwide, this is the Stephen Avery case, which is one of the most bizarre cases I've ever heard about in my entire life. Let's start with uh, let's go back to this woman, Penny uh, Burnson. Is that how you pronounce her name? Yeah, Penny Burnson. Tell us the uh, tell us the story here. Sure.
1: Well, Penny uh, was actually a pretty prominent person in this uh, little Wisconsin community, uh, you all know where Wisconsin is, right? You it's know, where Chicago. cheese was invented, yeah. You, yeah, you take a left after Chicago. <laughs> yeah. but, uh,
0: I've done that, yeah.
1: Uh, we live in a great area of the state of Wisconsin, Lake Michigan's right here. And Petty Bernson, uh, she and her husband ran a, a candy store, basically, that had been in the family forever, kind of a touristy spot here mm-hmm. in this city of Manitowoc, which is where I live and where I work and my uh, family works. And it's about, oh, 50,000 people here north of Milwaukee a uh, couple, couple hours. And Penny was uh, jogging along the beach. This is 1985. And uh, she jogged into this real remote portion of uh, Point Beach State Park. And I describe it in the book, I think, you know, mostly off of her testimony. I read the transcripts and in talking to Penny, too, speaking with her. And uh, this guy... Uh, who they later said was Stephen Avery, but wasn't, uh, basically jumped out of a, uh, a tree, a bush, a poplar tree bush, right on the edge of the water and just grabbed her. She bolted off into the, into the water to try to avoid being grabbed, and she's high-stepping it over the waves, and he lunges at her, grabs her, uh, drags her over some sand dunes, Brutally, horribly rapes her, uh, and uh, she's lucky to be alive at that point. So that's kind of where
0: it Yeah, starts. she she tries to to reason with him. You know, my my husband will wonder where I am. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. <and laughs> he it, wasn't it, taking. It, the, no, uh-huh. He no. gets more angry. You know, yeah. nothing worked, and she didn't. She didn't have a chance. Incredible woman, by the way. And I, you probably picked up that in the book. But a lot of victims of that kind of crime, you know, afterwards they'd either get very angry at the whole system that, and they would never trust uh, anybody again and they would you know want to throw away the key on their attacker uh and just turn into a real kind of ugly person or they would just really withdraw you know which i think is maybe more understandable some victims they just withdraw into themselves penny did the opposite uh, she got real involved in the justice system uh restorative justice you know the idea of bringing Offenders back to to society and not treating them like they're complete outcasts, and also trying to help victims. She had, she uh, she got into victims groups, but she went to prisons, you know, and she tried to. Uh, tried to change offenders' lives around by going and talking to them. as. Well,
0: that's themselves. really amazing when you consider what she went through. Uh, just as a book here, he beats her, after he rapes her, he beats her mercilessly. He smashes her face several times with uh, to her eyes, nose, cheeks, forehead. She kicks him in the groin, which, of course, only pissed him off more. He says, now you're going to yeah. die, bitch. And starts yeah. banging her head into the ground. Yeah. And, uh...
1: And then she's sitting there looking at her bloody hands, kind of dazed. Just oh, yeah, she's at
0: just her. in a state of shock. She sits yeah. there cross-legged uh, yeah. by the side of the water for a long time, just yeah. kind of duh, until her husband shows up.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally dazed, and uh, she's naked and bloodied and bruised, and, and then uh, somebody sees her first, and, and they put a towel around her, and their husband, you know, a mile down the beach, runs up and sees her. It's as bad as it gets for a crime for a woman to experience. Can you imagine that? This guy leaping out of the poplar trees, grabbing her while she's jogging along. Really a neat person, too. She was a YMCA instructor. They had a couple kids. Uh, Just as bad as it gets.
0: So they obviously had to catch this guy, whether it was the right guy or not.
1: Yeah, yeah. We can't let that kind of stuff happen uh, here in Wisconsin You know, or anywhere.
0: And they Uh, had an immediate suspect, a guy in town they didn't like anyway. They did, yeah,
1: and uh, he only real vaguely matched the description. But uh, this guy had bad luck, and that's Stephen Avery. Uh, He was uh, a couple of things. First off, he was on bail for a crime which was a heavy-duty crime in its own right. He had had run down a woman on the road, smashed into her car, held her at gunpoint, and uh, it's only when she pointed out she had a, a... uh, baby in the car that he let her go, but it's pretty clear he was going to assault her at that time. So the cops in this size of a community, you know, they already had this guy sort of in, in their mind, but he also had some bad luck, because the woman he pulled over on the case he was on bail for uh, was the wife of a deputy sheriff. no. L-
0: Bad, bad mistake. Better do a little checking next time.
1: Yeah, and yeah, not a real smart guy. And his uncle was a, a deputy in the sheriff's department too, so everybody knew, you know, Stephen Avery.
0: Well, plus it's a small town. He's got a business there. He has family there, large family. Yeah, he does. Married, and just uh, a, a couple weeks before this uh, rape thing happens, uh, his wife gives birth to some more kids.
1: Yeah, it's uh, twins, uh, the uh, third, uh, fourth, and fifth kid of uh, kids of. Uh, of, of five children, uh, I don't know if you like their names, Billy and William Jr. I thought that kind of gave, <laughs> kind of gave a pretty good idea. It's not quite deliberate, but the Avery clan—they're—you uh, they're, uh, they're, can see why the police maybe suspected him because he did sort of match the description. But it's quite a crew. Uh,
0: kind of like the movie Winter's Bone. Those kind yeah, of people. I don't know if you've seen that, but uh,
1: yeah, pretty creepy, pretty creepy crowd there but uh yeah you know, on the other hand there are people that it kind of reminded me of a, par- a farm family in a way they worked real hard together they they hung in there together they uh, i guess stick up for each other when they get in trouble and
0: uh he, he of, did he did have a temper he was known to get in trouble but then again he was also a married family man who was known to be very hard working
1: exactly yeah there's a picture of him and his family all five of the kids in the book. Uh, taken the night before he was accused of this crime and looks like a pretty yeah, a pretty nice family to me at least they're close to each other And uh,
0: so much his, to his surprise shock, regret and mortification they come and arrest him for this uh, this terrible rape
1: they do they just they come into the house uh, and uh, one, one officer hides in a closet below they didn't have a warrant uh, they used his uncle to kind of coax him down the stairs and uh, and they place him under arrest. Yeah, and hmm. from then it kind of takes off. I guess one thing you you, you probably noticed in the book is uh, before they arrested him, the the police sketch, the the artist, police artist composite, right? Uh, turns out that uh, the officer who did that sketch. Uh, It's the first sketch he ever did, first of all, and I think the only one that ended up in court. He uh, had access to the photo from the mugshot of Avery, Stephen Avery, uh, right in the hospital. It's never been proved, but I I talked to the two lawyers that did the wrongful conviction lawsuit, and they were were pretty well sure that they had almost... uh, Sat down
0: and just copied the... uh, (laughs) traced it
1: yeah you bet maybe take a little look and talk to the victim. It Could have looked a little bit more like that, you know you think maybe his his beard was a little bit more that way, and so there's a pretty good chance at least the lawyers thought they had thought they had pretty well proved, and I think it's pretty clear too uh the judge at the trial said the two. They uh, bore an uncanny resemblance to each other. And
0: Isn't that amazing? Good.
1: Yeah, they looked exactly alike. <laughs> so at that point, the victim sees what the cop draws, sort of based on what she says, and then they do a photo array. She picks him up. Yep, that was the guy that got me. Uh, and then they do a live lineup, and that takes ten minutes for her to pick out. And the public defender was there. And uh, it looks like she didn't know right away. Had to talk to her husband quite a bit, and the sheriff, and finally picked out Avery. Now there's a picture of the fo- the lineup in the yeah, I too. got it
0: right in front of me. Yeah, here.
1: Avery's what about a foot taller and uh, uh, shorter? Shorter, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Everyone towers over him. It looks like they brought in, you know, a midget. Yeah, the, you know,
1: <laughs> and the other guy. You think it might be the him?
0: small guy? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it just. Uh, so at that point, it's off to the races. They arrest him. The sheriff, sure, he's got the guy. And uh, then the book gets worse, or what happens? <laughs>
0: well, the book gets good. The, the crime gets worse. <laughs> the yeah, book's I should say yeah. the book
1: gets worse. <laughs> but the, what the book describes, what the cops and the prosecutor did after that, gets much worse to me because it's only then that they gradually came to know, probably within a couple of days, actually, that he didn't do it. You know, and worse they knew who the real guy.
0: Now, explain this to the audience. How did they know it wasn't him?
1: Well, uh, Avery, the guy they arrested, uh, there was a receipt from a shop, which is like a shopping mall we have here in Wisconsin, uh, that had the exact time... And the clerk remembers the family because she was wondering what this, these people were doing with this one-week-old set of twins in the store. But she identified them, and they had a clerk uh, at a receipt showing it was at 5.17 p.m. that they were in the store in Green Bay, which is about 30 minutes from here. Almost impossible for Avery to have done it and get there. The cops had to speed ten miles over the limit on the freeway to make it work, and they didn't have to run, you know, to the car after the assault and go grab his his children and get the car seat ready and put him in. And then there were fifteen alibi witnesses showing that Avery was with the Klan uh, at home. Uh, when the assault occurred, the women folk were inside watching divorce court. I think it was on TV, <laughs> yeah. and, and all the guys were out working on this cement project. So it just couldn't have been him. Uh, but the jury convicted him anyhow.
0: But wait a second! But if the prosecutors—did they really get it that this guy couldn't possibly have done it?
1: You know that's. That's a thing for the reader to figure out, but uh, I'm still a prosecutor in the office uh, where this <laughs> happened, and I, I wasn't there <laughs> when Avery was I, it, it sti- <laughs> I, Michael,
0: it stinks. It stinks real bad.
1: It does, and I, I what I was going to say is I'll try to let the reader decide, but I think any rational reader would decide that these suckers knew that uh, Avery was, was innocent. I just... And I, you know, it's hard to go through all of it on a on an interview like this. But we took it to the attorney general's office. I was so upset as it became pretty clear that they knew. In my opinion, and I think most people really look at it in their opinion that he didn't do it, but they didn't care. It's that old concept of, you know he's a bad guy anyhow, and if he didn't do this one, he belongs in prison. Yeah,
0: but meanwhile, the real person is out there doing it again.
1: Exactly, Gregory Allen a real creep I mean he even makes Avery look like an angel and he was he was on the prowl in Manitowoc in the area around here the cops almost had him a few times they were even tailing him at the time and he was the guy that did it and because they didn't convict him of course he was free to roam the streets and eight years later he brutally attacked a woman in Green Bay after breaking into her apartment uh, he's still doing part of a 60-year sentence for that. Never would have happened had they gone after the right guy.
0: It, this isn't the first time we've seen this. I mean, this case gets even weirder, but as you probably know, we had a situation over here in California, in San Diego. Our friend Caitlin Rother did a, a great book on the, uh, on the case, and we had her on. It was the woman who allegedly poisoned her husband with arsenic then uh, took the the money that she got from insurance and got a boob job and had sex with a lot of Marines. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I guess I did read, not that part, but the uh, other part. They're
0: going after the uh, prosecutors. Right? Oh, yeah, and then she yeah. was found guilty. There have been two true crime books about the case. And then it turns out the prosecutors knew the entire time that she never poisoned him.
1: Same thing as here. They thought, gee,
0: we'll be stars. We'll have some true crime books written about us, Well, we'll be heroes. And sure enough, they had two of them. And yeah. now yeah. they're being sued for multiple millions of dollars.
1: Good deal, because prosecutors too long have taken a walk. You know, a lot of them become judges after a couple big wins like this. Uh, and the courts have prevented uh, lawsuits. There's one in Iowa. I don't know if you heard about this one or not, Burrow. but the U.S. Supremes agreed to hear the case, and we're heading toward pretty clearly uh, a a ruling that prosecutors can be sued, that sovereign immunity doesn't hold back for their intentional wrongdoing, and the lawyers settled, uh, or the wrongfully convicted guy and the prosecutors in the state of Iowa settled for, I think it was $18 million.
0: Yeah, I think it was the FBI wrote a check to uh, uh, Geronimo Pratt for $16 million and said, yes, we framed you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, but the money, maybe it'll make it okay, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> of course, he did 27 years, most of it in solitary.
1: Yeah, this guy did 18 years.
0: 18 years trying to prove somehow that he was the wrong guy, that he didn't do it. And uh, what happened on appeals? They turned him down? Yeah, a couple times. He got one of the
1: best lawyers in the state. There's a lot of very good defense lawyers in Milwaukee, and uh, they fought hard. Everyone who ever represented this guy believed he was innocent. Uh, Private investigators tried to get television stations uh, to do stories on it. Uh, But the Court of Appeals, it's tough to win on appeal. You know, that old concept that the jury's verdict is been taken and unless it's uh, the legal term is I think uh, if there's no rational basis for a reasonable jury to find blah 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 uh, you know they can't overturn it so they did not overturn it until the Wisconsin Innocence Project got hold of it and uh, got some DNA testing done
0: that DNA can make all the difference in the world
1: it's a great thing it really is both to convict and to acquit uh, when somebody isn't guilty
0: well, it took uh, it took a little bit of, of work and lobbying to actually get to the point where they could get the the, uh, the samples to do the DNA, didn't it?
1: Yeah, my former boss, for whatever reason, uh, would not agree to the testing of the DNA, which makes you wonder what he knew. Well, he like was
0: it. probably afraid it would come out that they'd screwed
1: up. Well, that's what I'm thinking, but he wasn't the one who actually prosecuted Avery. It was somebody before him, but... You know how these things work.
0: No, oh, yeah, yeah. We had we had the Rampart scandal here. We know how those <laughs> things work. <laughs>
1: there you go.
0: So finally, or through whatever process it went through of trying to get permission to get to get these things—the hairs or the fingernail clippings or whatever the hell it was—what did they? What uh, what did they have to go with? What was left after eighteen years? There was
1: one hair left that had enough. Uh, biological material in the root to test for DNA. That was a pubic hair that was found on the victim. Burl, still there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm sorry. That was found on the victim back in 1985, and that pubic hair was tested by uh, DNA, and it came back on the data bank DNA in the prison. To Gregory Allen, the guy that was sitting for the crime he did in Green Bay.
0: And what I and, thought was fascinating about this is the person who does the testing is the same person who did the testing eighteen years earlier.
1: Go figure! Huh? There's yeah. a government employee with uh, longevity, not anymore <laughs> here in Wisconsin. She's probably retired now.
0: But, but that's—I that, uh, thought that was really amazing. The first time around, they're looking at well, did, could these hairs have come from from Mr. Avery?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and she was honest at the first trial. You know, hair analysis before DNA was used a lot, serology, I think they called it, but it was nonsense. And she knew it was nonsense and uh, testified, even though the prosecutor wanted her to say more, that uh, I can't really say much other than it could have come from this guy. But DNA is different. It's, it's, it's dynamite evidence better than fingerprints. You know, one out of, what is it, like one out of 50 billion chance that it's not the guy. Here's the worst thing. The guy whose hair was found, Gregory Allen, for raping Penny Burnson, had done the same thing or tried to do the same thing on the same stretch of beach two years earlier. He lunged at a woman, and he was prosecuted by the same DA who prosecuted Avery so you got similar crimes i found the criminal complaint in the file and this, this kind of gets complicated but i found the complaint in the avery file where the da who wrongfully convicted avery for a crime allen did the complaint was from a similar crime that allen did from 2 years earlier on the same beach so he knew that Allen went there and tried to do these types of things. He knew that Avery wasn't guilty. People in his office came up and said, hey, you got the wrong guy, Dennis. It's actually this Gregory Allen guy, and he lied. He told them, oh, I checked with Gregory Allen, and his probation officer uh, says he has a complete alibi.
0: Well, listen, we've got to take a 60-second break. When we come back, I want to find out what happened to this guy who lied. We'll be right back on True Crime Uncensored.
1: If you own an iPhone or ride the plastic pony in front of Kroger, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application. The smoking, drinking, interrupting, did I say interrupting? 24 hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio, like me. Change the way you listen to the
0: radio seven days a week. Now available at the iTunes App Store. There are some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. (laughs) Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend, true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. And now, back to True Crimes with Burl Bear and Don Woldman. And our special guest today, Michael Griesbach, author of Unreasonable Inferences, the Stephen Avery story unveiled. And there's a lot behind that veil that's pretty damn scary. I want to jump back here remind people you were actually working in the prosecutor's office, not at the time of the uh, the the original crime, but you came in there a few years later, correct? That's right. And so there it was, I believe, uh, on September 3rd, all three courtrooms packed. You walk out of Branch 3. This guy, Mark, runs up to you and says something about DNA test results on an 18-year-old sexual assault case. Can you join him in the office? And you do.
1: I do. And there on the conference call from the State Lab of Hygiene in Madison is Sherry Colhane, a chemist, who says the DNA on that 18-year-old case... Is not Stephen Avery's, it's Gregory Allen's.
0: Oops. (laughs) Big oops. So, what happened then?
1: Well, we start looking through the file, and I, within minutes of that phone, uh, that message about the DNA, I see a criminal complaint with Gregory Allen's name on it, the same guy that she just said.
0: So, this adds more credence to the fact that the prosecutor knew they had the wrong guy.
1: It does. There's no reason that Gregory Allen complaint would have been in the Avery file for a crime that he did a couple years earlier, where he at least tried. He lunged at a woman and dropped his swimming suit, and all he got was a disorderly conduct and a fine. But that prosecutor at some point, the former DA here uh, from years ago, from 1985, had to know that it was Gregory Allen and not Stephen Avery who committed the new crime. and he went. Is this guy
0: still alive?
1: Yeah, he is. He moved on to Madison. He's in a big law firm, lots of money, nice place right on the lake, takes nice trips every year. Not touched by the investigation.
0: Not touched?
1: Well, touched in terms of, yeah, lots of people were interviewed and all kinds of horrible stuff that I I bring out in the book came out. It's an 18-page report by the Wisconsin Attorney General. And you read the first 15 pages and your mouth drops about how they could have done this intentionally. But you get to the last page, the conclusion, where the attorney general herself uh, or her politicos get a hold of it, and it's a whitewashing. She found that it was just a matter of poor police communication, maybe a little tunnel vision, but no ethical or criminal law violation.
0: Oh, man, I've seen this too many times.
1: Yeah, it was ugly.
0: Oh, (laughs) meanwhile, this guy's sitting in the slammer for 18 years.
1: He was, yeah. And he became a hero in Wisconsin when he got out of the slammer. He's kind of a character. He came out looking uh, beard down to his.
0: Oh yeah, it's great. Great pictures in the book, ladies and gentlemen, this guy's got a beard, makes Santa look clean shaven.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he does. He's cracking open a beer back at home at the junkyard, the salvage yard, and uh, became kind of a folk hero here in Wisconsin. And there was the Avery Task Force, which was a reform committee in the legislature that was set up to review police uh, misconduct and different ways we can look at uh, at making sure we're right on photo arrays and that sort of thing?
0: Well, I've... I've... <laughs> We had a Willis Wilson on the show a couple of years ago and if you get a chance to go back to our archives and listen to that one called uh, wrong, wrongly accused or something uh same sort of situation woman raped with a knife to her throat and uh they put him in a lineup and he's the only guy with the beard yeah. <laughs> and they keep offering him deals to you know plea bargaining deals oh sure and he keeps refusing saying but I didn't do it but I didn't do it they uh, tried to pin him on uh, six other crimes done by the same guy, same uh, pattern, right. and he refused and refused and refused, and in okay. the final analysis, it took the the jury about ten minutes to find him not guilty, and the judge says, let me take you across the street for some ice cream. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but meanwhile, he spent all this time you yeah. know, his reputation ruined and God knows sure. everything else.
1: Yeah, Caps and prosecutors, they just can't understand how maybe they're wrong once in a while. If somebody says they're innocent, they really are. In their defense, 90 of the time, they're right.
0: But But it's a a different situation when there's an indication that they know. This is what really bothers me.
1: These are the bad ones. When they know and they go ahead anyhow, and it's that mentality of, well, he's a bad guy anyhow, so who cares if we put him away for something he didn't do? You know, it's, a, it's, it's an ugly thing, uh, and what happens after, of course, I'm sure we'll talk
0: about oh, it. Oh, yeah, because that's even uglier, and that's even more controversial.
1: Yeah, but uh, the, uh, the thing is, uh, when, uh, when you do that, you also, part of their thinking, I believe, there's the political part of it where they'd have to admit a mistake and maybe not get reelected on a real high-profile case. But they also look at the equation, okay, so once we did this photo uh, array, which is suggestive, and once the police artist did a suggestive sketch, we have a victim that if we now charge the right guy in cross-examination would have to say, oops, I was wrong, it's actually that guy, the real guy, and that's tough to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, no excuse. Obviously, if you know somebody didn't do it, even if it's the day before trial, you got to dump the case as a prosecutor.
0: I noticed that you you did get hold of the guy, the the prosecutor, and gave him a heads up that the uh, DNA was just exonerated this guy from 18 years ago.
1: Yeah, the the trial judge suggested I do that, and I thought fair enough. Uh, I didn't know for, at that point that he intentionally. Uh, wrongfully convicted a guy, so I called him, and uh, he called me back. And his main concern was is was there whether there was anything on the real uh, assailant in the file.
0: Yeah, he even mentions his name.
1: He did anything on Allen in the file. Couldn't give a, a, a rats you know what about uh, the fact that a guy sat for eighteen years.
0: And the thing is, why did he even mention that unless he knew it was there?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's any question. Uh, he he was worried there was there was something in the file that might show he knew what he was doing, and I just played dumb, you know. And then we took it to the attorney general's office, and uh, and he got sued for thirty six million dollars uh, by the wrong, the wrongfully convicted person,
0: which makes perfect sense to me.
1: It does I'm sure you wouldn't end ended up with thirty six million but you you aim high and it would have settled for something i'm
0: sure oh, so well even in walla walla washington we we had a case so, there where uh the the cop set set up a woman to uh, to get some uh some drugs for somebody uh and then said. When they busted her, you have to now work off your legal obligation by telling giving us other people to arrest. She hadn't even been convicted of anything yet. And uh, she refused. She went to court. The judge said the woman was not. Listen to this. She was not predisposed to commit this crime, but only did so at the insistence uh, and urging of the undercover informant. But they sent her to prison anyway. Her husband comes back from Desert Storm, takes one look at this, gets an attorney, and bam, she's out of there in a hurry, and he sues for $1 million for each violation of her civil rights, uh, which was a slam dunk. But and uh,
1: people, so they, they people take, don't
0: realize they can sue.
1: Yeah, yeah. And they take somebody who's not into the dope scene and, and, and try to put them into the dope scene. Mm-hmm. You know... Yeah, the concept of using the smaller fish to get the bigger fish. Uh, Metro drug units all over the country doing that. And if you're getting the real big fish, it kind of makes sense. But too often, we just end up with sort of middle-sized fish.
0: (laughs) Or minnows. Yeah. (laughs) Zygotes, whatever. So Mr. Avery, who spent 18 years in the Cosmic Slammer, gets out, sues for 36. He's authorized to sue for $36 million this is a small town and he may be a local hero but as far as the cops and the prosecutors maybe with you an exception of you uh, this is troublesome this has got to be an issue
1: well i think people start to get embarrassed Uh, for sure the sheriff and the d-a and the county's looking at it in terms of money of course and uh... Yeah, it's it's not a it's not something that any county wants to happen, and especially police agencies. They some people start looking at them a little cross-eyed, and they start wondering what uh, what they were up to. So they did not, no question, they weren't too happy about the lawsuit.
0: No, not at all. So Mr. Avery, meanwhile, is getting a little bit paranoid. He's got a scrapyard; it's about forty-six acres. He's got a big business, actually, when you stop and think about it. My father was in the scrap business, so I know what what those places look like. You bet. And uh, uh, he's a a hard-working man. Also, he seems to be a little bit aggravated that the the cops keep showing up and parking at the end of the road and staring at him.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: It's like there's some sort of intimidation game going on.
1: Yeah, and... uh... Yeah, mostly, once the once the story goes a little further, that intimidation's going on. Right, right. At part of the time, you see where uh, Avery decides he's got to move into an ice shanty, uh, which is a place where people ice fish up up here in Wisconsin. It's a real small little hut, and you can tell what happened to his psyche from all those years in prison. He needed the small space, mm. so there this guy is living inside an ice shanty, and. To tell you the truth, I think it's Avery's mind that tr- starts thinking he can kind of get away with whatever he wants to get away with, because he really was a folk hero at that point, and he figures the system owes him some.
0: No, and, it was thirty-six million. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, they do. But maybe a few get out of jail free cards too. Uh, and you have to remember that he he really was, uh, you know, one messed up dude even before he was wrongfully convicted, and. You start to think what 18 years and that anger built up uh, with that prior disposition, predisposition, would have done to his mind. So he was kind of a lost soul in those couple years that he was out.
0: I would imagine spending those 18 years in prison must have been very, very difficult for him.
1: I'm sure it was. If you know you're innocent and you're fighting back and you're sitting there for 18 years, you lost your wife, you lost your family, she divorced him, and, uh, yeah, that kind of anger and, and resentment, I'm sure, builds a lot.
0: And then a woman named Teresa Halbach goes missing.
1: Yes, she did. Freelance photographer from uh, Appleton area of Wisconsin, close to Green Bay. Uh, she's reported missing by her mother. And uh, turns out the last place Teresa was, uh, and this is on Halloween day of 2003, October 31st, the last place she had been seen was taking a photo at the Avery Salvage Yard of an old car that Stephen Avery wanted to put on the Car Trader Auto magazine.
0: Now, she'd been there more than once to take pictures.
1: She had, and the last time she had been a little bit creeped out because Stephen Avery showed up at the door just with a bath towel wrapped around
0: him. Well, that's better than nothing at all.
1: Yeah, yeah I think so. But she mentioned it to a friend. She must not have been overly creeped out because she did go back that day. But I, I think she wondered a little bit.
0: So she goes to take a photograph. She doesn't come home, and they start wondering what happened to her.
1: It did, and it, it becomes a you know a story on the night, nightly news as time goes on too. But six or seven days pass without having found her. Until a volunteer search party goes out looking, and they find her SUV, a Rav Four, on the Avery Salvage Yard at the corner, uh, covered with brambles and and, uh, and wood to try to conceal it.
0: Now, they didn't find it the other times they looked.
1: You're right. The police uh, police went out there earlier and did uh, what they call a cursory search. And they did not see Teresa Hallbach's car. Avery was a, that salvage yard was a suspect, uh, place they wanted to check right away because it was the last place she was known to have been. But they didn't see her car that day.
0: Well, then we, did you touch on something that, that, that we often talk about on this show, and that's trial by talk show. Nancy Grace, you turn on the TV, and Nancy Grace and her crew are talking about the Teresa Hallbach case. And meanwhile, Avery's still sitting up in his little ice ice cave in, uh, yeah. in the frozen north.
1: He's up in his cottage in the ice cage, yeah. And there he calls into the Nancy Grace show, of all things. Uh, but by this time, the police had discovered that uh, Teresa Halbach wasn't just missing, but she was gone. She was, she was in fact, it was as brutal as it gets. Uh, I was actually called out to the crime scene that day. Uh, and I'll never forget that day. Never. Uh, we had media helicopters flying above the salvage yard, and the salvage yard is a hilly area with grass growing up over cars. Uh, you're right; it is. It does a pretty good business, but it's also kind of a surreal type of atmosphere. And it just at that time of year, uh, October 31st, with uh, woods, and it started out as a real sunny day. Uh, but it turned into a driving rain later that mm. night, and we had the crime lab unit, the mobile unit there, with uh, kind of the headquarters and uh, a light and some some a canopy that was flapping in the wind. It turned into a real cold, forty degree kind of driving driving wind, and police, probably over a hundred police from different jurisdictions, with dogs barking, trying to search for Teresa's remains, and they hit. The dogs hit on a fire pit, uh, which later was uh, found to contain bones in a cell phone belonging to Teresa Halbach.
0: Now, when this all comes out, you turn on Nancy Grace. Now, the guest host, uh, Harris Faulkner, opens the show with a video clip of uh, Ken Kratz. Now, it's uh, from the prosecutor's office.
1: Ken Kratz is uh, yeah we, we uh, had a special prosecutor
0: because of the conflict with the lawsuit so okay we're gonna take a quick 60 second break we're gonna come back and find out what happened in this horrifying situation right after this. Promised her fourteen year old daughter a brand new dirt bike if she'd murder her employer. You know that is my book Mom Mom said kill. kill. The kid didn't get the dirt bike. Well guess what? The book is now available as a digital download from Barnes and Noble. Mom said kill by Burl Bear, the new digital edition. And you know what? Even in the digital edition, the kid still doesn't get the dirt bike. Mom said kill by me, Burl Bear, and I love me to pieces. Barbara Opal promised her 14-year-old daughter a brand new dirt bike if she'd murder her employer. You know that? It's my book Mom, Mom said, kill. said kill. The kid didn't get the dirt bike. Well, guess what? The book is now available as a digital download from Barnes & Noble. Mom said kill by Burl Bear, the new digital edition. And you know what? Even in the digital edition, the kid still doesn't get the dirt bike mom said kill by me burl bear and i will love me to pieces if you own an iphone or ride a plastic pony in front of albertson's you are no longer tied to your computer you are now free to roam while While barstow's burning and take outlaw radio with you everywhere you go Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application. The smoking, and drinking, and interrupting and 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Yes, of course, Burl Bear. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds, and I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Yes, I am the legendary Burl Bear. The show is true crime uncensored. Michael Griesbach, author of Unreasonable Inferences, the Stephen Avery Story Unveiled. St- hey, who who in the world is this Wendy Murphy, and where does she's got a hell of a lot of nerve? <laughs> <laughs> She's the
1: talking head prosecutor, isn't
0: she? Oh, my God. Yeah,
1: I guess Nancy Grace uh, likes to stir the pot. Man, I'll
0: tell you, I mean, I get so aggravated with this. It's been a running soapbox thing on on our show for ages. This trial by talk show and indictment by soundbite. And people think that what they're hearing on these shows, not mine, of course, because we don't do the cases under investigation for this exact reason, they think what these people are saying has some foundation in reality.
1: Oh, it's unbelievable. There she is, you know, claiming it was never shown that Avery was actually innocent of the first one. And she's blaming the Innocence Project oh, for yeah. getting them off.
0: Yeah, she says uh, doesn't mean he's. I'm sick of these DNA lies. Yeah. The Innocence Project and these people who falsely claim that 150 men have been exonerated and proved actually innocent with these new DNA tests on old cases is nonsense. Well, the nonsense is it's 250 cases now, Miss. Right. And uh, the DNA does work. Yeah. But the one that gets me, she's on Nancy Grayson talking about this and about how obviously uh, Avery is guilty and hasn't gone to court yet. Yeah. She
1: decided. Based on basically nothing that he must
0: have done it. Yeah. And uh says how does he explain the bucket of blood from his body in her car? Bucket of blood? What's she talking about? I said out loud, that's you. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was a few stains.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was. It was two or three drafts, but to her it was a bucket of blood. Ooh. Unreal.
0: Now what uh it comes up that when People say, going, uh-oh, this, this might be a conspiracy. They they might be uh, trying to, uh, to frame our guy again. The Kratz responds, telling reporters and his family's allegations of planting evidence were absurd. And here's what he says, and this just floors me. He said, someone would need a vial of Steve's perspiration to plant his DNA on Teresa's car keys. As it turned out, Ken's choice of the word vial turned out to be an unwise one.
1: Yeah. You read it very carefully, Earl, because, indeed, a vial is exactly what the defense was later able to accuse the police of doing, a blood vial. And, you know, when I'm researching this case, it is just bizarre as you're going through all this because there was a blood vial from the first case. That was in the Avery file from 1985. Still,
0: it was sit- sitting there. Anyone could get there. It's sitting on the counter,
1: sitting there for anybody to grab. And the defense lawyer just loved it. Uh, I think I called it a red herring when he's kind of mocking, you know, disgust. But I think he came upon the mother of all evidence there because I don't think in the end the cops did it. But that's for the reader to decide. I don't think they framed him again. But this lawyer, these two defense lawyers in the in the murder case, had so much ammunition. The mother of all uh, uh, frame-up evidence in this blood vial, because they accused the police of sneaking in, getting the blood vial and so well, they didn't have to. S- didn't it. have
0: to sneak. I mean, not as far as getting your hands on the vial, it's sitting right there in a cardboard box on the counter.
1: Yeah, I guess they had to get into the clerk's office, but the bailiff had the key, so it's certainly possible.
0: And, uh, I mean, there's other things that... I mean, if I were he, if I was going to do something that heinous, which I wouldn't anyway, but somehow mine doesn't work that way, the last place I would hide anything would be on my property. The last place I'd put the car would be on my property. The last place I'd burn the body would be on my property. And if I had the keys to this car... I wouldn't hold on to them and hide them uh, behind the dresser in my bedroom or wherever the hell it was.
1: Yeah, and how do you like the way the police found those keys? Isn't
0: that amazing?
1: It was about the sixth or seventh search.
0: Yeah. Well, look look what we suddenly found. Yeah. It, It really rubs me wrong. It just, it screams at me. There's something really wrong here. Do you think he didn't do it, man? I don't. It's just it is so bizarre. And the other thing is, is when you have a, a confession from what his nephew or something. His
1: nephew is sixteen years old. Yeah, and,
0: and he says they chopped her up in little pieces in his room. No blood stains in the room. No yeah. blood evidence at all.
1: You want to hear the prosecutor and me talking or not?
0: Okay, why are you talking?
1: I mean, you want to hear the prosecutor saying why I think he did it, and it wasn't a frame-up the second time.
0: Now, save that for a minute. Okay, explain to me how you. G- I mean, I, I think Professor Alan Hirsch, who does the false confession thing, should be here to talk about this sixteen-year-old giving a confession about chopping up a body with a bunch of, and there's no blood stains there.
1: Yeah, I listened to that link that you had when he had uh, when you interviewed him. That was really interesting. And this sixteen-year-old is. Uh, I guess some people, you know, call him developmentally disabled to some extent. Uh, He's a high school kid. He graduated from high school, but no prior, no priors at all on his record. And you're right. There was no blood found in their bedroom. And the the, uh, story from the 16-year-old doesn't get any worse, does it? I mean, as far as how they did it. Oh, it goes into
0: horrible graphic detail of the terrible things they do to her. But when you go to the place where it says they did it, there's nothing
1: yeah, there's no blood evidence there. Uh, there was some uh, some kind of ammonia detergent that would have removed blood, and I suppose... Could yeah, but you know
0: how useless that is when people try to do that. they got ways that you can test for that stuff. Yeah.
1: I I don't know. All I, all I can tell you is uh, that's another thing the reader's got to figure out. I can also tell you there's plenty of folks around here who believe the police did set up Avery in the murder case, too.
0: It's. Uh, I don't know who else could have done it unless they know someone who has that modus operandi, as they say. But just something. I mean, especially when I read the the confession, which doesn't seem to be very rational at all. The confession of the sixteen-year-old, which doesn't match any of the the physicality of things.
1: Well, that except, really
0: bugged me. Yeah,
1: it it did. You know, he did say that they burned up. Uh, Teresa's remains, basically, after Avery cut her into pieces. And I hate to bring all this out to your listeners, but that's exactly what happened. I mean, this is Jeffrey Dahmer kind of stuff. And the police found the bones where the kids said they would, and their cell phone as well. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of weird stuff here. It just happened to be two Manitowoc County police officers instead of the other jurisdictions that found the key, too, that mm-hmm. found Teresa Hubach's key. Uh, so I can see why people really wonder, uh, and although it is a three-hour taped video confession, but I'm no expert on false confessions. Uh, so, How guess, many
0: hours was he in there before they got the confession out of him?
1: Oh, I think they had been at him several times, and this was probably the third or fourth time they interviewed him, and probably hours, that's true, before they talked to him. This time, his lawyer. One of the appeals after the fact was ineffective assistance of counsel, and it turns out his lawyer just sent him to that interview alone, figured oh, out how he can handle it. Come <laughs> so, on! Oh I'm yeah, I care. have a
0: developmentally delayed sixteen-year-old. He doesn't need counsel present. <laughs> you, you, you got it. <laughs> what? <exactly> what <laughs> Whoa! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait. That sounds awfully wrong to me
1: yeah i I think that's about as ineffective as you get in fact, the appellate counsel in the in the dassey case, and that's the nephew they're from the Northwestern University Innocence Project in Chicago, and they not only accused him of being ineffective assistance but also accused him. Of of actually trying to help the police, so the kid's lawyer, having decided it's in the best interest of the kid to cooperate to get a better deal, is basically pressuring the kid into confessing himself. No, it's, this
0: is really sick.
1: It's ugly. It's ugly.
0: Does it make uh, you want to like go get a different job?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I didn't have four kids and a great Wisconsin pension that our governor's trying to steal, I, I would. I'd like to get another job, but people tell me you ought to hang in there that we need people that, yeah, I don't want to sound like I'm some overly virtuous type here, but I would never do this. And we need we need good prosecutors, people who treat people a little more fairly than uh, than happened here.
0: So Mr. Avery is then, of course, convicted of uh, chopping up uh, this innocent woman and burning her uh, on his property and hiding the car on his property and keeping the keys and putting them in his bedroom that they didn't find until the third time they searched the room. And he's now, uh, he's back in prison.
1: He's serving a life sentence now, yeah. He was convicted after the jury deliberated for three days. So they were obviously chewing on uh, a not guilty verdict, or at least some of them was. It's up on a, excuse me, uh, the case is on appeal right now. So we'll see what the Wisconsin Court of Appeals has to say.
0: Well, when he got to the sentencing, there wasn't much to argue about. I'm quoting here from your book. When it was his turn to speak, Stephen Avery said he felt sorry for Teresa Hallback's family and their friends, as well as his family and himself. Quote, it's hurting everybody, he said, unconvincingly. You were in the room. He said he would prove his innocence someday, just like last time. Teresa Hallback, I didn't kill. He said, I'm innocent for all of this, and I figure later on I'll prove myself innocent. I feel bad about it. I wish they'd catch the guy who did it, whoever did it, because I didn't do it honest to God. And then they locked him up for life until, unless something goes. <laughs> I mean, this story could just keep going. It
1: could, yeah. If, it, if, if something else comes up, uh, then I am going to change what I do. for <laughs> <a day. laughs>
0: Man, now you, you must have had some static writing this book, but there are people who couldn't have been enthusiastic about you doing this.
1: Well, I don't know if I'm the most popular prosecutor here in
0: Wisconsin. No, right now, I don't but. think. I'm surprised you haven't gotten missing
1: yeah, well, I've I've gotten, uh, I wrote a letter for the, or an article for the State Bar uh, Journal or Monthly Magazine, and actually a couple prosecutors called and really, really liked it. A lot of defense attorneys liked it, because I tried to point out why it does matter that Avery was wrongfully convicted, uh, unlike the talking head prosecutor on Nancy Grace. So there's a mix, you know, I think the prosecutors that are in this for the right reason, i I suppose they would would not uh, hold it against me that I wrote a book like this.
0: I thought it was very ironic last week uh, we had on Stephen Singular was talking about the OJ case and the EDTA uh, evidence that uh, came into play and, and, uh, and uh, the innocent uh, verdict. Not guilty verdict by the jury, and the uh, the same tests were done for the opposite reason or the same reason in yeah. uh, in this case, yeah, yeah, but... they had to
1: show the prosecutors that they didn't that the police didn't plant it, so they needed to show there was no preservative in the in the blood on the on the car uh, the FBI hustled in our case supposedly they worked uh, two weekends in a row to develop a new protocol, and the idea here is to figure out when blood for it, for instance, here it was the blood on the victim's car. The defendant was saying the defense was that the police set it up and put that blood there from the vial in the clerk's office from the first case. Well, that vial had this thing called EDTH, some long chemical Right. Thing. And because that's a preservative, but the real blood of Avery, if if it was real blood of Avery on the car and not from the vial, would not have this E D T H. But according to our court and the defense lawyers and all the lawyers in our case and the O J case did come up during argument, but they didn't believe there was a test that had uh received enough uh recognition in the scientific community to be valid. But they hustled, the FDI experts on our case hustled Uh, It's not my case. I shouldn't say that. There's a special prosecutor in this case. I
0: didn't prosecute. Yeah, they didn't want any any of the hometown boys involved. Yeah, we got (laughs) the heck. We ran. (laughs) No, we we don't want those guys involved at all. (laughs) No. No. So, uh... uh, with, all your, with all your prosecutorial work, I mean, do you have a lot of homicides happening there in the little town in Wisconsin? There,
1: there's a couple a year. Uh, well, that's
0: unfortunate. Yeah, you
1: know, it's a county of 80,000. We're in between the, the Northwoods and the more urban area, Milwaukee and Madison. Uh, Green Bay, the Packer land, you know, it's only about a half hour from here further north. Uh, but there's a lot of crime. People would be surprised in smaller towns—not nothing like the volume, but the types
0: of crime. You know, cocaine and—well, yeah. Well, I mean, of course, what else are you going to do in small towns like yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. Something to keep yourself amused. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Something you to kill the pain of living there.
1: You know, uh, look at so many cows and beer cans.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cows, beer cans. Give me the heroin <laughs> <laughs> and cheese cheeseheads. Don't yeah, you know, cheeseheads. that'll that'll do it right there. Yeah, <laughs> time me off right now. <laughs> You could go to Wisconsin, and we can shoot you up. What's yeah, it going to be?
1: Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
0: Well, are you going to be going on Nancy Grace to talk about this? I thought about asking her. Maybe I can get on with that same prosecutor. Oh, yeah. Slap her around. (laughs) Buckets of blood. Listen, uh, Michael Kriesbach, fantastic book, ladies and gentlemen, called Unreasonable Inferences. The Stephen Avery story unveiled. Uh, Well written, too. Guy must be a lawyer. Uh, (laughs) You can get it on Amazon.com, Books A Million, uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, Libris, uh, any of your booksellers will gladly get it for you. And it's a great reading a fascinating story, and you'll come away scratching your head going, I don't know. I really don't know. But I know it's a great book. Thanks for being our guest. Oh, thanks a lot, Pearl. Enjoyed it a lot. Great. Thanks for being with us. Oh, next week, The Sex Slaves Murders. Yeah, Sex Slaves. Sounds like fun. Well, it's not. America's first husband and wife serial killer combo. A tag team of serial killers. Our Berry Flowers will be our guest. Next week.